By the turn of the 20th century, themed immersive attractions were actually a thing already, believe it or not. In addition to the regular collection of thrill rides, freak shows, and so forth, creativity and imagination, and a love for money, drove a few individuals to push the envelope, to harness illusion, technology, and storytelling. The results were astounding for their time. And so let's take a quick detour in the transition from Disneyland to the regional theme parks and look back at some of the intriguing experiences that served to propel ideas forward that would become center stage in Walt's mind. Welcome to America's Disneylands, showcasing the history of regional theme parks. I'm Barry Hill, and this is Episode 3, Coney Shoots for the Moon. Six flags waving every family. Now it's showtime at the Crystal Life in late 19th century America was rapidly going in new directions, as people realized having fun was, well, more fun than working all the time. A young Fred Thompson certainly agreed, and so the forever youthful, fun-loving entrepreneur would go on to make such an impact on society as to rival Walt Disney many decades later. His two greatest contributions toward this would be the Hippodrome in Manhattan, New York's gigantic toy, and Luna Park the biggest playground on earth. In 1900, Thompson was all of 26 years old, bidding on contracts and concessions for the upcoming Buffalo Pan-American Exposition. The primary focus of the extravaganza was to be educational object lessons, providing a curriculum far more comprehensive than that of any established institution. The goal? Instruction and improvement of the people. The result? A total flop. Nobody cared about that stuff. But they did, however, flock in large numbers to the amusement midway. To have fun, of course. This is where Fred, the consummate showman, would make his mark. This would be no ordinary ride or show, but an immersive experience. He wanted to fly people to the moon. And back. Ridiculous. And yet, as he worked out the concept, the vision gradually took shape. Constructed in a 34,000-square-foot building, visitors would behold the magnificent airship Luna, cigar-shaped with large fan-shaped canvas wings on either side. A guide from the Aerial Navigation Company explained in serious, pseudo-scientific terms the grand adventure upon which they were about to embark, rich with the relevant physics and aerodynamics that made it possible. As they somberly listened to the spiel and waited their turn to board, the airship could be seen making its descent back to Earth. They entered the transport from one end, surrounded by earthbound views of the fair. Suspended by cables, the ship actually floated and bobbed a bit as the people moved about the cabin. Then the engines rumbled to life, the wings flapped away, and the ship launched upward, evident by the rapidly receding views of Earth that scrolled by the windows on painted tarps. The Great Falls of Niagara were heard, accompanied by blinking lights from the city below. 
fans blew air in their faces to simulate forward movement. Stereoopticons, devices that projected two images, either to create a 3D effect or to dissolve one into the next, projected moving clouds onto the scrolling canvas images. Approaching their destination, they could see the man in the moon before landing in the crater of an extinct volcano. Upon arrival, they departed the ship, on the other end, and walked into a moon cave featuring a group of moon residents, little people who twittered and showed them around their world. Green cheese, strange trees, fountains, and a row of lunar retail shops. Actual merchandise was sold, contributing to the attraction's huge profits. They all provided quite the spectacle. Ushered into the palace of the man in the moon, they were treated to a moon-dancing extravaganza before reboarding for the flight back home. As is the case in modern theme parks, very few actually believe the illusion was real. Now, there's always somebody. But for its time, a trip to the moon was beyond the norm. It was totally immersive. It was multidimensional. It featured multimedia. It was groundbreaking. It was the world's first motion simulator. It was a very well-designed experience that took a great step forward in transforming entertainment into what Walt and the regional parks would dream up years later. After the Buffalo Fair closed, Fred was looking for another venue for the moon attraction. He had partnered with a former rival, Elmer Skip Dundee, another successful creative businessman. The two of them would prove a perfect match, balancing each other out, moving great ideas forward. The new location would be Steeplechase Park on Coney Island. Thompson wasn't really interested in Coney, thanks to its terrible reputation at the time. But George Tillieu, another irrepressible showman, had built the first substantial amusement park there, and it was going well. He offered the partners a concession for the attraction, with Steeplechase getting 40% of the profits. They took the deal and had a bang-up first season, making enough money to get them thinking about different possibilities, like maybe building their own park. You can see the six flags waving, ever traveling, as you pass the famous giant sky. You are flying in your own private orbit, as the astrolith flies. Paul Boynton's Sea Lion Park, the first gated amusement park in history, was in dire trouble. The partners were able to buy his land, along with a few other adjacent parcels, and construct their newest venture, Luna Park. Patterned after the Great White City of the Chicago World's Fair, Luna was majestic, dramatic, inspiring. The layout was intentional, unlike most parks where stuff is randomly plopped down wherever convenient. The landscaping was beautiful, and the buildings and towers radiated from 250,000 electric lights. The park's icon was the electric tower, towering over a central elliptical pool. Although based on the neoclassical architecture of the Chicago Fair, Thompson, ever the whimsical, fun-loving guy, transformed the skyline with non-traditional curves, swirls, and spirals. The color red added flavor to the park, including the use of a heart symbol that proclaimed Luna to be the heart of Coney Island. Luna Park opened on May 16, 1903, at exactly 8.05 p.m. Every light in the park switched on, and the result was breathtaking. 
and highly successful. People love this park, along with its extensive list of attractions. Among other various shows and whatnot, there was a larger, improved trip to the moon. War of the Worlds had folks sitting in a Fort Hamilton gun turret, observing enemy ships approaching harbor and getting blown out of the water. Feeling the vibrations from the grand explosions and gunfire, great cheers rang out for each direct hit. Under the Sea matched the moon attraction in its sophistication and experience. Housed in a 65,000-square-foot building, riders were sent on a submarine journey under the North Pole, inspired by the Jules Verne novel. Similar to Disneyland's submarine attraction, passengers would descend into a submarine and take a seat in front of portals along the side of the ship. The engines cranked up, the boat vibrated, and they submerged down into the 24-foot deep pool. Immensely long spools of canvas rolled by showing the progress, and refrigeration systems cooled the interior air, especially as they neared the North Pole regions. A near collision with a sub passing overhead was heard as the captain frantically lowered the periscope just in time. As with the moon excursion, passengers departed to visit the friendly Eskimos amidst their frigid world before returning safely back to Luna. Luna made its mark on entertainment in a profound way. Other than Dreamland, its soon-to-be-completed neighbor and competitor, no other parks would feature such large-scale, detailed, story-based, immersive experiences until Walt began transforming the business in the mid-1950s. It was to be a long gap. Walking the grounds of the 1888 Buffalo International Industrial Fair, it was impossible to miss Henry Roltaire's latest illusion. An upside-down house, resting firmly on the tops of multiple chimneys. Inside the building, clever use of mirrors and other tricks delighted visitors living in the whimsical age of P.T. Barnum. Having studied under the popular American magician Alexander Herman, the London-born illusionist quickly developed a mastery for trickery and immersion. But his greatest creation, actually titled Creation, at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, technically the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition, it took things to a new level. Dominating the ornately sculpted entrance was a 40-foot-tall winged angel spanning 80 feet wingtip to wingtip. Just inside, Visitors would board boats that ran on a metal track, cruising past scenes from early world history, including biblical scenarios. Exiting the boats, they walked through more of Voltaire's visual installations before climbing stairs to the top floor. From this perspective, they were able to look down upon the entire panorama, only to realize it was the walls and scenes that were rotating past the boats, which were, in fact, stationary. Yet another trick by the master. Here they were also treated to the big show, presenting the six days of creation, complete with moving scenery, sound, lighting, and so forth. Adam and Eve appeared near the end of the nearly two-hour experience, clad in one-piece suits that unimpressively wrinkled as they moved. Angels then stood at the stairways to signal the end of the whole shebang. The following year, William Reynolds was looking for ways to plus his Dreamland Park. Dreamland was the third major park to be built at Coney, the intent being to beat out the two earlier parks, 
steeplechase, and Luna. Everything was bigger and better. Reynolds would liberally steal ideas and attractions from the others and make them bigger and better. The challenge was that there was a limited number of visitors that came to Coney. One part could do quite well, as Luna did early on. But when Dreamland opened, it split this visitor pool, making it nearly impossible to pay down his enormous construction debts, much less return a profit. He was thus in fierce competition and wasn't going to back down. He spent half a million dollars, 1905 dollars, for season two, with half of that dedicated to bringing Roltaire's creation to his park. He bulldozed the old entrance and a couple other buildings and constructed a new show building along Surf Avenue, 150 by 200 feet large and 90 feet tall. The experience was shorter than it was in Buffalo, but nobody cared. It was a huge success and delighted religious organizations and not-so-religious folk all the same. Creation fit a moralistic theme at the park that seemed to contrast with a typical carnal Coney environment. A couple of New York City historians maintain, however, that the reason perhaps wasn't so much a saintly endeavor, but rather that in order to run attractions on Sundays, prime attendance days, local laws required such things to be educational or religious in nature. Life is ever practical. After witnessing the awe-inspiring birth of the world in creation, visitors could then walk across the way and get sent straight to hell and back in Hell Gate. You couldn't miss it, with a demonic Satan glowering over the top of the building, its bat wings spread across the entire width of the facade. While standing in the queue, the open front building clearly showed the poor souls ahead of them whose boats were savagely caught up in a swirling, deadly 50-foot whirlpool that suddenly, before their very eyes, sucked them down out of sight into the bowels of the earth. Well, of course, we all want a load of that, so everybody pays their ten cents and eagerly awaits their turn to see what Satan has in store for them. Turns out, it's an iron and wood trough that spirals the boats down below the surface, into a water channel where they float through scenes depicting the underworld. Constructed of papier-mâché, everything is dark red, with paper fire flaming everywhere. Satan appears, sitting on a rock and rubbing his hands expectantly, as would any greedy downtown merchant. And why not? Business is booming, starting with a girl who is admiring a new hat in the mirror, until demons grab her and fling her into the pit, another trough which, you know, shoots her out of sight. Her screams can be heard amidst the fog effects and paper fire. A young man is next, making the fatal mistake of drinking whiskey, which sends him to eternal judgment as well. Satan continues to enjoy the spectacle, snickering as his next victim is caught stealing a few coins from a companion's purse. Into the pit. The sermon begins, explaining how such vices lead one to the fate they have just witnessed. Attending church is far better for the soul, and cheaper, too. And then the clincher. Gentlemen, if you wish morality to work on men's souls with a force of castor oil, you ought to pay your preachers more. Well, I figure preachers probably ought to get a little bit more than what they normally do, but I don't know much about the forces of castor oil. The saga continues. An angel appears, ziplining across the dark cavern, and at the sound of his trumpet, Satan makes a hasty dive into the pit along with his demonic support staff. A crash, the paper stones are thrown into the pit, and the curtain falls. You have been warned. Eventually, the boats pop back up to the surface, releasing the sinners who naturally run around to buy another ten-cent ticket. Hellgate was a hugely popular attraction. The press ate it up, raving how wonderful it was. 
For the second season, the Rye was upgraded with newer boats, a longer experience, and better effects. It also spawned a similar attraction called The End of the World. All was just dandy until late one night in 1911. The park was set to open the following morning for the new season, and workers were patching the boat trough. Apparently, hot tar got knocked over, light bulbs began exploding for whatever reason, and everything, everything, went up in flames, as in the entire park. People came from all around to watch the spectacle. Dreamland was equipped with a state-of-the-art fire suppression system, a product of the region's history with major fire issues. But as other nearby properties realized the danger, they also tapped into the water mains to hose their places down. The result was too little water pressure at the park, effectively dooming it to extinction. When reinforcements finally arrived, both on land and from firefighting ships, it was clearly a goner, so they focused their attention on protecting everything else around it. The tragedy, aside from losing an entire amusement park, of course, was a loss of animals caged at the park. Many were rescued, but several animals refused to budge while attempting to transfer them to their transport cages so they could be hauled away from danger. Others were set loose when someone opened a main gate. Additional chaos erupted, animals started fighting, and a poor line ran across the property, main on fire, until someone shot it out of mercy. Thankfully, the exhibit holding premature babies in incubators, yeah, that was a thing, believe it or not, was successfully evacuated. Dreamland was never rebuilt. Financial records disclosed that it had operated deep in debt, owing to owner William Reynolds' determination to outdo Luna Park. It never made any money, and there's speculation that the fire was not an accident, helping to rescue Reynolds and his financial situation. At any rate, as far as we're concerned, Dreamland, along with the other parks in the Big Three, played its role in advancing the notion of a themed, immersive experience. This was an essential step in the evolution toward Disneyland and our beloved regional theme parks. So, thanks William. Sorry about your park, but hey, we're pretty grateful. America's Disneylands is produced by Rivershore Creative. Find out more about regional park history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books at rivershorepress.com. For the complete history of America's regional theme parks, grab a copy of Imagineering and American Dreamscape, available everywhere. Thanks for listening.